Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. No housekeeping today. We will jump right into it. Today's episode is a conversation first had on Zoom for podcast subscribers with Gary Kasparov, who uh, perhaps needs no introduction. He's been on the podcast before, one of the greatest chess players of all time, world champion for many years. But in his more recent incarnation, he has been a tireless advocate for democracy and Western liberal values in his home country of Russia. And as you might imagine, he now has much to say about Putin's war of aggression in Ukraine. Uh, So we really cover the whole topic. We talk about how we got here, what the perception of the war is inside of Russia, the allegation that U.S. and EU foreign policy is to blame, that NATO expansion has been too threatening. We talk about the perception of American weakness and how that might have provoked Putin. We notice in passing the otherwise unimaginable Republican support for Putin. We talk about the sanctions regime and how effective that may be, the extent to which Putin miscalculated in this war, whether he might be the victim of a popular uprising, whether the U.S. and the EU should impose a no-fly zone over Ukraine, or insist upon regime change in Russia, and if we do either or both of those things, how we can avoid World War III. We talk about the role of China in all this, and discuss the larger implications for the defense of the Western liberal order. Anyway, a useful and all-too-timely conversation. I think I may do some more of these live on Zoom, because you all seem to like that. And I hope you find the conversation useful. And now I bring you Gary Kasparov. All right. Uh, well, just to remind everybody, this is a uh, a live recording of a podcast. So this is an opportunity for all of you to just uh, watch us record a podcast. And, and I'm very happy that you're joining us. Uh, and I'm especially thankful to you, Gary, for taking the time to uh, have this conversation with us, because I know you're inundated with um, demands on your time here. It's, um, you know, many people know you as the um, one of the greatest chess grandmasters who's ever lived. And um, it's always fun to talk about that, but we've got um, other priorities now. Maybe remind us how you come to have such strong opinions on the topic we're going to touch today. I mean, you've, you've for years have been politically active in and outside of Russia and a, a great advocate for democracy and, and Western liberal values. And you're working now with the Renew Democracy Initiative and, and other orgs. Uh, just tell us w- what you're doing on this front. I grew up in the Soviet Union, and I had my own experience living in an, Af- in an unfree country and uh, dealing with KGB, that's as every other Soviet citizen. And of course, as uh, being a chess prodigy and, uh, and uh, a top grandmaster and eventually world champion. So I was under very um, special attention. Uh, of party uh, officials and, and KGB operatives. And uh, when I saw Vladimir Putin taking over at the end of 99, year 99, so uh, I, I have to say I was stunned because during these glorious days of August Revolution in the Soviet Union, August 1991, 
when the jubilant crowds toppled the statue of the KGB founder, Felix Dzerzhinsky, at Lubanka Square in Moscow. I don't believe anybody could bet one to a million that in less than nine years, KGB Lieutenant Colonel would be in charge of Russian affairs again. And it was not just about a KGB officer. Vladimir Putin was quite frank explaining his views of the world even before he became president of Russia. Being a prime minister and as an apparent, heir apparent of Boris Yeltsin, he spoke uh, at the gathering of KGB officers in their headquarters, which was televised. And uh, he said there were no former KGB officers. One KGB, always KGB. He never tried to hide his uh, 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 uh for the Soviet Union. It's his famous phrase repeated many times. The collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. The first mm. thing he did as a president of Russia is a restoration of Soviet national anthem. And of course, the war in Chechnya, uh, carpet bombing of Grozny and other Chechen towns and villages, uh, very mysterious explosions of apartment blocks in Moscow and other uh, Russian cities as a pretext for, the, for this war. I didn't know what could have happened, but I knew that the guy could be a great danger for the world if given the chance. And every time, you know, he did something that, you know, was a warning signal to me, I tried to communicate my, my concern to the rest of the world. And uh, I think that's, it's, it, was, it, was, it, it was more than enough to listen to Vladimir Putin in person. If nobody cared what Garry Kasparov or Boris Nemtsov said about Putin and repeatedly said Putin was our problem, but at one point it would be everybody's problem. But Putin himself, at a certain point, decided that he could uh, express his views about the future of our planet in public. 15 years ago in Munich at security conference in Europe, he talked openly to the world leaders about what he called spheres of influence. Returning to not even the 20th century, to the 19th century, where the big countries, big guys, as he said, would be in charge of all affairs and will dictate uh, to smaller countries how to behave. And he believed that uh, Russia, under his command, was entitled to control not just former Soviet Union, but Eastern Europe. It was within Russia's heritage rights. And um, every time that uh, he did something to materialize his views, like attacking the Republic of Georgia in 2008 or annexing Crimea in 2014, I thought that the world would wake up because he did it. And unfortunately, nothing happened. So basically, we are now in this, in this tragic situation. Uh, and Ukrainians are paying with their blood uh, every, every, not day, every second as we speak. It's because for so many years, nobody wanted to take this threat seriously. Mm. We read history books about 1930s. And uh, many of us, I guess, as myself, were surprised. How come that nobody could see the danger coming from Hitler? Because in 1933, it was one story, 34, is another story, 35, 36, 37. But when I mentioned Hitler or just German Berlin Olympic Games in 1936, compare them to 2014 Sochi Games, I was ostracized by international media saying, how could you compare anyone to Adolf Hitler? And I said, look, right. 
Hitler, Hitler is, is a monster with no comparison, but it's Hitler of 1941, 42, and onward. But in 1936, just read your newspapers, American, Canadian, German, uh, not German, French, British, and he was treated differently. So again, dictators never ask why. It's always why not. And Putin attacked Ukraine now because he believed that he could get away with this crime as he did many times in the past. And vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, Putin said many times also. We just, you know, again, you don't have to uh, take my word. Ukraine was not a real state, according to Vladimir Putin. He believed that Ukraine basically belonged to Russia and could be split between Russia, maybe Poland, Hungary. And Ukraine for him was something like Poland for Stalin, an obstacle on the way for their geopolitical plans. So what do you say to people who you, you hear from now, both on the left and the right, in, in certainly in American politics, that there's been something provocative about U.S. and EU foreign policy, that NATO expansion is really the reason why Putin has done this, that, that, there's, that you have to sort of see it from his side and, and sympathize with his security concerns. Uh, we're hearing a fair amount about this. And there are other, I guess you might even just run through some recent presidents and just how their dithering has enabled Putin's sense that he could do this, right? I mean, there's been something provocative about American weakness, too. So I wonder, I guess that I've asked you two questions there. I mean, what, what's the role played by NATO and NATO expansion? And what's the role played by just the perception of, of American and, and European weakness and internal division? I think we're dealing with two separate questions. So yeah. one is more strategic, one is more tactical. So I use the chess metaphors. So I'm always reluctant to use chess metaphors discussing Putin. I prefer poker. But in this case, let's start with mm -hmm. this. The argument about NATO expansion and uh, provocative foreign policy of NATO, you, did, you, you said, did I, did I hear you saying EU, European Union, provocative politics? Mm -hmm. right, <laughs> it's right. the, it's yeah. a, it's a toothless organization yeah. that, you know, just that's, was afraid of, of gas, its own shadow. Yeah. It's this, uh, but it's good because that's, that's, that's the way that uh, it's, it's, everything has been mixed. It's like a little salad. Oh, it's NATO, EU. I mean, all sorts of the guys that are trying to attack Mother Russia. That's, that's a classical Russian propaganda. Unfortunately, parroted by people on the right and on the left. Yeah, some of them are on the payroll. Some of them are useful idiots. But these arguments, you know, this could be discussed before Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Now, looking at the war crimes on an industrial scale, I hope some of these people should now recognize that they were not just wrong, they were dead wrong. And, by, and, and their, uh, their attempts, maybe genuine attempts, to spread the blame, embolden Putin to, to move beyond imaginable. Because so many times we heard, no, Putin would never do that. The, long of th the, the list of things that Putin would never done, because it's so bad, I mean, it's too long. And uh, now I think everybody recognizes that the man cannot be stopped until he's stopped. And uh, mm. same people who said he would never do that, now they are seriously discussing whether he can use nukes. Now, speaking about these so-called concerns, I don't think we can blame Poles or Lithuanians, or Estonians, or Latvians, who rushed to NATO because they had an experience, a genetic memory of being occupied. The price they paid for Soviet occupation was too high, I mean, just to blame them or for their desire to join NATO. 
and to hide under, under American nuclear umbrella. Now, speaking about threat to Russia, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, the three Baltic states, they joined NATO officially in 2003. The distance between Estonia and St. Petersburg is about 150 miles. I never heard about any threat coming from Estonia or Latvia or Lithuania or even Poland to Russia. It's about Russia. It's about Russian aggressive wars and, and open threats to, to the neighboring countries that we, we reached the, the, this, 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 this climax. Now, speaking about American aggressive policy, they, Clinton, Bush, Bush, 40, uh, Bush 43, Obama, Trump, Biden, I'm not here just debating their, their political views, but until very recently, it was concession after concession. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that if we, if we try to understand Putin's rationale, if you may call it rationale, for attacking Ukraine, it's not NATO strengths, but it's a weakness. It's, it's lack of American leadership. And he's believed that he could get away with direct assault on Ukraine de facto, if not the euro, liquidation of an independent nation and um, installment of a puppet government and uh, continuation of his uh, imperial uh, uh, policies beyond Russian border or even beyond former Soviet Union. I mean, let's not forget, you know, this is Putin had other, call it foreign adventures. What about Syria? So this is, I don't think there's there's any any argument about Mm. Syrian rebels threatening Russia. Russian right. planes carpet bombed Aleppo. Gary, do you share the view that Putin significantly miscalculated how the West would respond and just how world opinion would turn against this war so quickly? Uh, yes and no. I mean, it's, he made mistakes in his calculations, uh, but it's, it's probably not so much about Western response, immediate response, because he had a simple plan. The way I see it and what I read from Russian propaganda machine, and Putin, by the way, he has been building his military presence around Ukraine for quite a while. Unlike the dictators of the past that tried to hide their plans, Putin was quite open about it. He even brought part of his Pacific fleet to the Black Sea. Mm. Last time I looked at the map, it's quite a distance. And he surrounded Ukraine from East Russia, South Crimea, and also from Belarus, from the North. So the Ukraine was surrounded and he had Russian fleet in the Black Sea ready to, to, to shell Ukrainian, Ukrainian infrastructure. And uh, last year, there was an argument that Putin did it all for blackmail. He wanted to squeeze concessions out of Ukraine. Maybe. But I think that is just, you know, after he met President Biden in Geneva, we all remember the summit. And the summit was, according to American administration, all about Ukraine and, and Biden and his team said that they looked at Putin, put straight in Putin's eyes and said, forget about it. If you do it, we'll impose sanctions just that's beyond your imagination. I don't think Putin believed him. It's just that you know, there was, um, as we were told, some decrease of the tension around, around Ukraine. But Putin hasn't removed his troops. So he looked around. So just to, and, and then he continued his buildup. Then there was a, one call between Biden and Putin. Same result. Then the third call. I think that this, this is what Putin read, Putin's reading of these calls was America was not ready, was not ready to yeah. oppose him uh, decisively. And also, while American intelligence, it's not me, it's US intelligence, 
and Biden is not Trump. Trump didn't trust American intelligence. Biden did. Kept repeating over the last few months, attack was imminent. The question is, why, if attack was imminent, Ukraine received no military support that could inflict great, much greater damages to, to, to Russian troops, especially to Russian warships and Russian planes. So, um, Why do you think that is? Why, why, why didn't we support them earlier? I, I think that because uh, Biden administration played a game, again, either we say on many chessboards or, on, or if we use poker analogy on many tables. United States uh, viewed Russia as a partner in climate change talks. You have to listen to John Kerry, who even mentioned the climate change, change, uh, 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 change mm-hmm. talks after Putin's uh, attack on Ukraine. But more importantly, on Iran. I think it's, it's, it's some sort of the cognitive dissonance to, to have Russia as a part of the Iranian deal, which is, as, we are being, as we're being told, to prevent Iran from getting nuclear. And Russia has to stockpile enriched uranium from Iran. And, and, and Russia today is, 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 is a country that is openly threatening to use nukes in, in conventional conflict. So yeah. I think that the U.S. administration tried to separate these issues and Putin saw nothing but weakness. So he could downplay Americans' warnings about Ukraine because he could always negotiate. And he's quite good. Give him credit. He's very good in negotiating and uh, shifting these bargaining chips on, the, on, the, on, on this table of geopolitical casino. It's poker. He's a, he's a mm. great poker player who used to bluff and to win because even if he had a weak, weak, weak hand, he raised the stakes so high that opponents always folded the cards. Can you generalize about the perception of the war inside of Russia? Or is it, is it just, I mean, I, I guess the, Look, the question it's is, the, it's the, how it's, effective do you think the propaganda is domestically in Russia? Oh, uh, it's a question. It's not just about information that's available or not available in Russia, because Putin now is closing every, every hole that, you know, that's, that's we could use to, to send messages to, to Russian people. The internet is still functioning there, but you know, Facebook is now is 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 uh, banned. Uh, Twitter now, YouTube is just you know it's slowing down. Mm-hmm. So there are very few channels left for information to travel uh, back to Russia because the the, the 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 pictures from Ukraine they are very different from what what Putin expected. And I think now just is talking about information war. So the Putin is losing it because his main plan to take over Ukraine failed miserably. No doubt that he wanted to, and he believed he could, to take over Kyiv within, uh, within two, three days after the beginning of, of his advance, because, since the, the, the distance to Kyiv from Belarus was very, uh, uh, it's much shorter than from, from Russia. And uh, he thought that the moment he takes over Kyiv, Zelensky is on the run, Ukrainian government is paralyzed, or just, you know, it's, 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 it's gone. The infrastructure is, is military infrastructure is, is broken. And his puppet is sitting in, in, in Kiev as the newly um, proclaimed leader of Ukraine, maybe Viktor Yanukovych, the deposed president who was hiding in, in Russia after he was kicked out mm. from Ukraine in 2014. And he expected, and not without a reason, that the free world would be talking to him and will hear so many pragmatists saying, oh, it's a new geopolitical reality. The same way they told us about this after Crimea. Oh, it was... It was just, you know, it was bad, but we had now had no choice but to accommodate Putin because what else we can do? So this is classic, you know, this, nothing is being done. 
and eventually say it's it's too late for, for anything. So nothing can be done now. And the failure to take over Kiev and to break stiff Ukraine resistance in Kiev and Kharkiv and other, other major cities, I think led to the change of the strategy and, and bombardment of Ukrainian cities. In the first three days, they tried to avoid direct hits. The campaign was very different. They, it, obviously, they, they hit occasionally a few buildings, but it was very clear that they, they had an order to avoid civilian casualties because Putin wanted to present the story of liberation of Ukraine. Only when right. he failed in Kiev, they changed it. And now this is they, they bom- try to bombard Ukraine into submission, same way they did in Grozny in 2000 or in Aleppo in 2015. And I think the information actually is, is, is traveling to Russia, even, even through this Putin's information bubble. One of the reasons, massive Russian losses, massive losses. I think we can trust Ukrainian sources because they, they, they count. It's, it's, head, it's good headcount. There are more than 11,000 soldiers being killed. Uh, we don't know how many wounded. The reports that are finding its way through the uh, censorship in Crimea, telling us about the hospitals there, all overcrowded with Russian, with, with, with wounded, sick and wounded. So it seems that, you know, the, from, again, from various sources that I think we can trust with you know, some level of confidence, that public opinion in Russia is, is slowly shifting. because. You, you can't deceive people all the time. It's already, it's, mm. it, it's nearly two weeks we are at war. And by the way, now the, the word war is banned in Russia. So this is this, the, right. the new laws right. that have been adopted by Russian puppet parliament. Now, if you are uh, protesting against the war, if you are standing in the streets of Russia with, with, with a poster no, uh, no to war, three years in jail. If you try to tell Russian people using your social media account in Russia about Russian losses in Ukraine and about just to tell anything that contradicts official version of, of events in Ukraine, which is called special operation, not war, up to 15 years mm. in prison. So that tells you that the truce is, is, is a mortal enemy for Putin's propaganda. Yeah. It's yeah. This, they are afraid of it as much as vampires are, are scared of, of, of daylight. And uh, well, on um, that point, do you think Putin is vulnerable to some domestic uprising at this point? I mean, whether it's coming from the top, from oligarchs, or, or it's coming from an anti-war movement lower down? Is, what's the prospect that we could see Putin actually unseated by this and see a complete reset of, of the Russian government? I mean, Navalny coming out of prison, etc. No. As for Alexei, I, I, I've been saying that Alexei got life in prison. Putin's life. As long as Putin is, is in Kremlin, Alexei will be in prison. The moment Putin is out, Alexei is also out. And I'm sure you'll, if he survives, I mean, God forbid not, anything horrible happens to him in, in Putin's jail. So he will definitely play a role, in, in very important mm. role in, in uh, the future of my country. But analyzing the, the probabilities of some sort of uprising, and you put together all, all these ingredients, oligarchs, uh, Police, yeah, yeah. army, security apparatus, popular uprising, and political and, and social economic protest. I think what we're seeing now, it's, it's quite a significant political protest. When I say significant, it's, it, it is quite amazing. And I'm, 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 I was very proud for tens of thousands of people who made it to, to the streets of Russia. You say, oh, country of 145 million, and you have what? 20, 30, 40,000 people 
protesting against the war. But that's not demonstration in New York or in San Francisco or in Berlin or in London. You go to the streets, protesting against the war, almost guaranteed, beaten, arrested, detained. Yeah. And then you can end up in jail for many years. So for people of different ages, you can look at them. This is demographics. It's, it's, it's very broad. To take this risk, just to defend, I don't know whether they think about the honor of the country or, or about their own feelings. I, I feel ashamed. Incredible. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm a Russian citizen. When I just talk to Ukrainian journalists, and I do it every day, I know I, it's tough because it's being done. It's not on my behalf. I'm one of the staunchest opponents of Putin from day one. In, he's day one in the office. But still, it's, it's Russia that brought death and destruction to Ukrainian soil. And many people, I think, you know, feel the same. And they just believe that they have no other choice, even with a huge risk. But to show up on the streets, they don't, nobody's going to defend them. Nobody's, nobody knows their names. But it's, 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 it's a very personal choice. But that's not mm. something that can shatter Putin's dictatorship. But if sanctions are working, and I say real sanctions, sanctions that will throw Russia back to the technological stone age, sanctions that will, be, will include financial, economic, technological measures, also total isolation and eventual military defeat in Ukraine, this combination could create an explosive mixture that could lead to a social economic protest. And that's a revolt that will bring millions of people to the streets. And if Putin is running out of cash, and it looks now that he, he is no longer in charge of the greatest fortune in the history of, of, of uh, humanity, because most of the assets are frozen, so how is he going to pay for his military, police, and propaganda? So that's why I think the chances for, for massive revolt against Putin within the next month or two, if situation doesn't change on the ground and, and, and the war continues, more losses, and the free world stands firm, united against Putin, might lead to internal conflict because... Loyal to you the don't Putin. see a possible backlash against the sanctions? I mean, could, if the sanctions are really biting the people of Russia, could they be perceived through a, a Russian nationalist lens, basically confirming the, that the West is the enemy of Russia and that you know, Putin is uh, right to view it as I hear a, this argument all the time. I think it's just, it's, it's not realistic. Yeah, for maybe for a day, maybe for a week, for two weeks, they can blame the West. At the end of the day, you have to mm. feed your family. And, uh, and it's Putin who started the war. And uh, right. it's, people have to find solution. And uh, free world is far away. The West is far away. Putin and Putin's cronies are just nearby. So I don't think that you know, we should now worry about, about the hard economic hardship. I sympathize with these people. But, but please don't tell me about that when Ukraine is being killed. It's not about economic hardship. It's, it's people women, children, elderly being killed as we speak now. So it's time for Russians to make a choice. And I, I wish, you know, they could rise earlier and it will influence people around Putin, his henchmen, his cronies, because they, they are loyal to him, not because of ideology, great ideas, communism, imperialism, Russian nationalism. It's a mafia state. Every yeah. state has its mafia, but... In Russia, mafia has its state. And Putin is, is, is a mafia boss, capo de tutti capi. And he 
again, give him credit. He built this very sophisticated system where loyalty is just, it's being changed for personal gains. But people who always show loyalty to him for personal gains, for benefits, I don't think they're willing to die for him. Whether they are just, you know, he's from his government, security apparatus, or this, his military. That's why I'm so adamant demanding the no-fly zone, because I don't think that Russian pilots will be willing to sacrifice their lives to uh, uh, give Putin a pretext to uh, start a war against NATO. I, I want to see mm-hmm. how many Russian pilots or Russian generals will follow Putin's orders to enter confrontation with NATO, because that's, for them, it's, it's a suicide. And I don't think that the morale in Russian army, in Russian political circles, in security apparatus, it's, it's, can, can, be, can resemble anything that we witnessed in Hitler Germany or Stalin Soviet Union. Because many old dictatorships, they had this ideological craziness and, and fanaticism. I don't see it in Russia. It's, it's all about, oh, we, can, we do it because we can do it. If we cannot do it, mm. I'm not so sure that they will be willing to, to put their, their, their lives at, at, at risk. So I, I want to talk about the strategic logic of a no-fly zone, but uh, one more question on sanctions. What do you think about the strategy of rolling them out incrementally the way we have? I mean, I, naively, when I look at this, it seems, I mean, I understand the, the logic of holding something in reserve so that you can, you know, when Putin calls our bluff again and again, we can ratchet the um, the sanctions on him. But why on earth are we still buying Russian oil and gas? We're f- directly funding his war on a daily basis. What, what, what do you think of the sanction regime thus far, and what do you think we should have done differently? This is a very important question, Sam. It it's, it's, it's just helps us to understand the, the, the roots of the current crisis. Because in, in theory, incremental sanctions could influence decisions of a potential aggressor. But it, it's important that you, you have an adequate response. Now, even 50% of the sanctions that have been imposed lately, maybe 25% of the sanctions in 2014, after annexation of Crimea, could have saved us from this nightmare. Right. Some sanctions imposed, let's say, between Geneva summit and, and, and first Biden-Putin Zoom call uh, so from June 20, 2021 to, I think, November last year, also could actually send a message to Putin and his, and his inner circle that America was serious. I think the big mistake was to threaten the sanctions without actually doing it. So now we reached a point where, unfortunately, no half measures will work. And that's another rule that I, I learned from history books, and unfortunately, we're all learning today. Every day of our delay responding decisively to the threat of a dictator, the price goes up. And something that could have worked before the invasion doesn't work now. When Americans, American administration talked about sanctions as a threat, I said many times, I put it on, it was on my Twitter or my Facebook, sanctions cannot stop tanks if tanks are rolling, if planes are just dropping bombs. So sanctions could actually help to prevent it, maybe. But now we reach the point where it's, it's no longer prevention. It's about solving the problem. So you do not compromise with cancer. You have to cut it out. And I think now it's, there's no other choice for us to see that the 
the, the end of the war must lead to the collapse of Putin's regime. Because as long as Putin stays in Kremlin, there will be no peace. Mm. So would you favor ramping up all the uh, 100% sanctions at this point? I mean, so that we uh, exert every feature of economic war we can all of a sudden? Look, it's a oil embargo sounds great, but it's the, it's the, I said it's, it's, it was not even necessary if America could impose technological embargo because Russian oil industry will not function without, or gas industry, without a full tech support from the, from the free world. But obviously, mm-hmm. you know, oil embargo has a psychological effect. My only concern is just, you know, that is this doing this oil embargo, we are helping other bad guys. As much as I, I'm concerned about Putin and, and his, his criminal uh, uh, war in Ukraine and, and, and people being killed all the time, look, helping Iran, Saudi Arabia, or Venezuela, that's, those right. are also bad guys with blood on their hands. So um, it's, I understand there's a balance, so you just have to find a balance. I, what I think is important now is, is to come up with a strategy. Because at the end of the day, look, it's, it's, we're all concerned about climate change, but what's the difference? The more oil in, from Venezuela or more, more oil from America? At the end of the day, you could, or from Canada. So I think it's important to, to uh, agree on priorities. And if priorities are about Putin and about the, let's be honest, about change of the regime in Russia, then we have to concentrate on, on, on this goal. And I think it can be done, but I'm not sure that the, there's an agreement about the, the, the future goals and how we're going to solve Putin's problem, which does not disappear with the defeat of his armies in, in, in Ukraine. And also, we, we are all talking, you just mentioned in the beginning of our conversation, about Putin's attempts, crazy attempts, to spread the war beyond Ukrainian borders. So I think it's time to recognize that we are playing the game, again, let me use chess analogy this time, that cannot end in a tie. It's, that's why it's not exactly chess. Either we win mm. or Putin wins. And, uh, and I think we just, we just have to do whatever, uh, mobilizing all the resources of the free world, and also from political to, to call it spiritual and ideological. Because Ukraine, I think, gave us very powerful spirit to, to show how to fight and, and die for freedom and democracy. And uh, mm-hmm. to make sure that as a result of this war, not only Ukraine will be safe and, and, rest- and will restore its, te- its territorial integrity, but Russia will become free. So you've spoken two phrases that I think are going to strike fear in many people. The first is a no-fly zone, and the second is regime change. And each, in their own way, by a slightly different logic, seems to uh, invite a serious escalation of the conflict and even the threat of, of a nuclear war, right? So, I mean, many people are looking at the situation and all of their bandwidth is taken up with a concern about just avoiding World War III. How do we prosecute this conflict in such a way as to know that we're not going to go over the brink here? And so let's take them by turns. A no-fly zone. A no-fly zone seems synonymous with a shooting war between the U.S. slash EU and Russia, which is to say a, a, a shooting war, a conventional shooting war with nuclear armed powers where one is run by a psychopath who increasingly has less and less to lose and who's already threatened in some form to use nuclear weapons if he's antagonized. So talk to me about a no-fly zone. How is it that you can advocate that? Again, we're dealing with a strategic question because you raised 
a very good point. And I, again, hear it all the time. No fly zone involves considerable, maybe even high risk of open military confrontation with nuclear power run by psychopaths. I understand this argument. But when I hear next to this argument, President of, the, President of the United States, Joe Biden, saying we will defend every inch of NATO territory, I'm trying to reconcile these two statements. Because he supposedly is planning to defend Lithuania or Poland against nuclear power run by a psychopath. And uh, what's the difference? I mean, are, are we saying that, oh, Putin, if he wins, God forbid, in Ukraine, he will not go beyond that? He will not test NATO? He doesn't even have to cross the, the borders. He'll start putting all, all political pressure. And that's a problem. It's just, you know, America lost so much credibility over years. It's not, it, it hasn't happened today with Biden. You know, it's, you had Trump and you had also Obama with his reset policy and uh, his uh, and ridiculing Romney who called Russia correctly 10 years ago, a geopolitical form number one. He is rejection to, to, to remove Bashar al-Assad you know, after uh, this infamous red line was broken and chemical weapons were used. America yeah. lost tons of credibility. Of course, Afghanistan debacle, this disastrous stampede, also emboldened Putin and other bad guys around the world. So you reach the point where you have to demonstrate you're serious. You know, if, unless Putin knows that America has political will and resolve to defend allies, now, how are you going to, 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 to protect NATO from being turned into a, yeah. a, into, into a paper tiger? Because... Well, I mean, so th this question does put the very logic of NATO into question, because I think, I think if you asked many Americans, even many Americans with large microphones who are reaching millions of people now, whether they would want us to defend Estonia or Slovenia, they would say no. In large measure, this is what Trump has done to, to our domestic view of uh, our, our stature in the world. But even Republicans, I mean, this is a sidebar question here is, I can imagine your amazement at seeing uh, Republicans uh, rally to the cause of Putin in recent years. You know, it's you know, a proper source of despair. But the question here is, perhaps let's add regime change to the calculus here, because the concern I think many people feel is that if Putin truly has nothing to lose, right, if his losing this war is going to be synonymous in some form with him being strung up by his heels, in the town square, then we're, we're in some kind of suicidal game of chicken with a psychopath who we have not given any other exit strategy to. I mean, we had to, don't we have to build him some kind of path by which he can climb down from this, the height of this conflict? Otherwise, we're, we really are just dealing with an increasingly irrational actor. We can't expect him to decide to commit suicide you know, to spare us the, the hassle of having to fight a war with him. So what are we saying when we say that regime change has to be the goal? Aren't we tying our own hands here and, and, and demanding of him a just kind of an endless escalation? Oh, uh, yeah. I, the question is whether you think you can prevent escalation. Maybe you can prevent escalation by sacrificing Ukraine. Ukrainians have been paying by their lives uh, for the idea of giving Putin a you know, face-saving opportunity. You want to give Ukraine to him? I don't think Ukrainians will agree. They're fighting, by the way. Even without NATO air, for, uh, air power, 
they are inflicting huge damages to Putin's army. Mm. By the way, I don't think that Putin can win the war. I think he already lost this war. And it's, it's not a question whether he can subdue Ukraine. He failed of doing so. But in, in, in the process of this loss, he will kill tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of civilians. That's what he can do. Right. Now, whether we can avoid this escalation or not, it's not a question because it's not for us. We're not deciding. We don't like it. We want peace. But as you said, we are dealing with, with a psychopath. Now, do you think he will change if he wins? So it's world history you saw, you know, a dictator, a psych, a psych, psych, psycho um, in, in charge of, of the country with massive military power who was pacified by concessions from the free world. And uh, um, speaking about this threat of nuclear war, I, I don't want us to die. I just, you know, don't believe that, you know, any further concessions to Putin could, you know, could help us avoiding that. What can help us avoid that is demonstration of strength, because at the end of the day, if Putin says, go, and it doesn't start with strategic nuclear uh, uh, missiles, it, it starts with tactical nuclear weapons. That's everybody's is discussing this, whether he can give an order for, uh, for Russian navies you know, or for Russian generals on the ground to shoot uh, one of the missiles to Ukrainian military strongholds. Right. Can he do it? Yes. Will this order be carried? I'm not so sure. And that's, you know, that's exactly what we can and should do now to make it very clear to those who will be carrying these orders, or they, supposedly they, they will be... They have to push all the buttons and, and make it work. They, they have to pay for these crimes with their lives instantly. Not in Hague, in international court of, of uh, criminal court uh, in, uh, in uh, five years, but in five minutes. Mm. I don't think Russian army has battalions of kamikaze. They're not there to die. They're there just to, to attack most civilians, because they just they, they, they thought it would be an easy walk. It wasn't. So um, we reached a point where there's no easy way out. It's not about perfect solution. It's about us deciding so how we can respond to war crimes on an industrial scale. We talked a few minutes ago about Russian people making the streets, knowing that they will be beaten, arrested, and maybe spending years in jail. Nobody knows their names. Nobody's going to defend them. But they do it because they believe it's, it's what they have to do to, to not to lose their humanity. So for those who are now so concerned about the end of the world, can you watch these videos from Ukraine? I can't. I, I, just, I, I'm, 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 I thought I'd, I would never be surprised. We saw so, so many tragedies. And I, by saying that, I, I'm under no circumstances, I'm trying to undermine tragedies happening elsewhere in the world. By the way, that's, that's another lesson we have to learn. Ukraine is there, but we, unfortunately, that's not unique. We have genocide, Uyghur genocide. We have massive mass murder, murderers running some African countries. That's, Ukraine should t- teach us that we, we cannot stay away from tragedies. If, if, we, if we live in a globalized world, we have to share this pain and, and, and suffering of other people. And Ukrainians are fighting back. Mm. They are winning this damn war. And, and it's, not offering them hand to support them, which is, again, it's, it's not going to be the decisive factor of the war, but it will save thousands and thousands of innocent lives because it will ground Putin aviation. I will be surprised if, if he has kamikaze 
that will try to challenge NATO, NATO um, mm. Air Force. Or, you know, give Ukraine weapons. It's still this, they have stingers, they yeah. have javelins, but give them more sophisticated weapons. It's the, even the transfer of the old Soviet jet fighters from Poland to Ukraine takes forever. It's just an endless negotiation. Yeah. I think many people see a difference between escalating the proxy war, which is giving them basically all the weapons they need, and an, are enforcing a no-fly zone ourselves, right? I mean, that like at least there's some some plausible deniability that we're not in the war, even though we're handing them drones and planes and javelins and everything else. Do you see a distinction there? I mean, if we if we were going to arm the Ukrainians uh, as much as we possibly could, real distinction about su- subtleties, you know, about the, the definition. Well, a, a distinction that is is in fact real, even if it's only psychological and for uh, policy's sake, it has the effect of not giving Putin the final push into the abyss, right? Where he can say, "Okay, we are now in war. I'm now at, in in a hot war with the United States," and um, we're, we're escalating from here. You may call it securing humanitarian corridors if you don't like no-fly zone, making sure that there are mm-hmm. corridors that will be protected by NATO Air Force for Ukrainian civilians to escape. Now they cannot escape. So that's the, it's, if, if we're talking about a name. And as for the pretext, the reason for Putin to escalate, you said it during the conversation that is a psychopath with nukes. And if he's losing the war, he could do whatever he thought helpful for him to restore his credibility in the eyes of his, of his uh, cronies. And uh, he doesn't bother very much about rational explanations of his actions. He attacked Ukraine talking about denisification of Ukraine, denisification. It's a country that has a Jewish president. And he talked mm-hmm. about denisification. So he doesn't bother. If he decides to escalate, he will escalate. Now, again, let me go back to, to people that, that, that have to carry his orders. Yeah, we are Putin propaganda says we're at war with America. I'm not sure it will encourage Russian soldiers to rush to the front line to die. I think to the contrary, many of them will try to run back because they know it's, it's, it's the end. They cannot win the war against Ukraine. They're stuck. And, and every day, you know, Ukraine is, is, is inflicting horrible damages to Russian army, both, you know, technology, uh, the Russian tanks and, 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 uh, uh, and other heavy equipment, the planes, helicopters, and of course, soldiers. Putin has been mm. steadily losing his best troops in, in, in Ukraine. Now he's trying to mobilize. Are, are you saying global. when you're he's saying they can't hire, win the war hire, against Ukraine? Uh, uh, some kind of guerrilla war, uh, uh, warriors from Syria. Right. So, Gary, just to be clear, when you say they can't win the war against Ukraine, are you, are you saying that, I mean, I think most people believe at this point that, you know, eventually Russia is going to be able to successfully occupy any place it wants in Ukraine and install its puppet government, but it'll be fighting kind of an endless insurgency that will be, you know, ruining the lives of, of everyone on the ground. Is that what you picture the, the end game would look like here if this just drags on? That's what people believed before the beginning of the war. I think you guys, you are two weeks behind the schedule. Two weeks. So you, two you weeks actually ago, don't you don't think we, they, they could successfully occupy Kiev at this point? Occupied? I yeah. mean, you kidding me? You know, you know the size of Ukraine. It's the largest European country by territory. It had forty-four million people. Even with the right. two million refugees now, it's still pretty big country, and it has total unity fighting Russians. 
most of the fighting now is actually almost exclusively happening on the eastern or southern Ukraine. It's Russian-speaking territories where Russian is its, its dominant language. And they have mm. zero support. We have so many reports, zero support for, for uh, occupation. So uh, it's, it's not just about, you know, guerrilla war. It's not in Afghanistan. Ukrainian army is fighting. It's just so you're, fighting so you're not every expecting day, every so, minute. So if this drags on, you, you would not expect Kyiv to be occupied? No, Ky- Kyiv can be would... destroyed. But that, that, will be the, that, right. that will be graveyard for Putin's army. He's not attacking Kyiv, not because, you know, he, he, can, he wants to spare it, because it's hard. It's just, it's, they tried to, to take over Kyiv in three days. They cannot even take over Kharkiv. That is almost, you know, just to destroy to, 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 to the ground. It's, it's, it's almost in rubble. Mm. But it's still standing. It's the Ukrainian army that is standing there. And Ukraine receiving more and more weapons. Again, it's not enough because this is not a heavy weapon they need. And they, don't, they, they need planes. They need surface-to-air missiles. So it's if you, it, and I hate calling it proxy war because this is not a proxy war. Ukraine is doing proxy for us, proxy war for us. Ukrainians are fighting for their freedom, for, 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 for their state, and they're telling us, showing us that it's, there's things in this, in, this, in this world worth dying for. And, uh, um, and it's army getting stronger every day. There are many volunteers coming uh, to Ukraine from all over the world. Last time it happened, yeah. 1936 in Spain. And by the way, just let's remind our audience who, who was the enemy of the, of the international brigades in Spain. We are facing, you know, this, it's, it's an existential threat to humanity coming from the paranoid dictator with nukes. That's why just, you know, repelling him from Ukraine is not enough. And Ukrainian army, I believe, will defeat Putin's armies, will defeat Putin's armada. But again, it's about the cost. And it's the cost that right. Ukraine will pay. And, and yeah, sooner we'll do it, it's better because every day makes the situation worse and worse. And um, I think it's, it's vitally important for us to, I mean, not to sit on, you know, just um, in front of our screens uh, and, and uh, rooting for Ukraine. Yeah, well, I, I'm, wonder, I'm wondering if you share this view. I mean, if there's any silver lining to this uh, atrocity, it's that Putin seems to have united the West at this point. And I mean, just, there's, you know, with, with some exceptions, but not important ones, I don't think. I think everyone is more or less on the same page that Western liberal democracy needs to be defended and that all of our internal squabbling about inconsequential matters has created a perception of Western weakness, you know, and perhaps, in fact, some actual Western weakness that needs to be remedied. And even deeper than that, and more important than that, I think this is the first war that we have experienced where the norm, we've encountered a basic norm that has changed. I mean, at this point in the 21st century, a true war of aggression not a response to some civil war or you know some other intervention, but a true war of aggression is just fundamentally unacceptable to modern human beings. I mean, it's just there's something so appalling about witnessing this completely pointless invasion of Ukraine that the world, I mean, the world is showing signs of just being unwilling to put up with it, and 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 in this case, putting up with it at the hands of it seems literally a single individual. I mean, we're like the world is having to suffer a real risk of a, go- a global cataclysm. You know, wh- you know, whether we can avoid that cataclysm uh, or not remains to be seen. That is being visited upon us by the whims of one man. And 
the fact that that is our status quo, that, that we are perpetually vulnerable to this, the kind of adventures of you know, lone psychopaths, it's just, it's completely insane that we're here. And I think that, you know, this is the first war that is being played out moment by moment on social media, where we have this kind of united perception of just how obscene this status quo is. I mean, and it has been the status quo forever. I mean, war, wars of aggression have been the norm, not the exception. But all of a sudden, it, it just seems completely untenable. I'm wondering if you share that, that view. I think Putin not just united the world, free world, as you pointed out now, and it's, it's a correct assessment. I think before this, this latest tragic events, Putin exposed the weaknesses of the free world. We have to give them credit for building the most sophisticated network of agents and lobbyists in history. and. Um, he realized at a certain point that the free world became complacent after victory in the Cold War. And uh, many of his actions were dictated by his beliefs that he could do almost anything because the free world was weak, lazy, complacent, and not ready to fight back. Hard to blame him for being so yeah. cynical about our ability to, to fight back. Because he managed to buy, hire, turn politicians of the top, uh, top caliber politicians like chancellors, German chancellor, Austrian uh, chancellor, former chancellor, uh, former prime minister of France. It's a long list of politicians, captains of business and uh, luminaries uh, from sport, from art, every, literally every walk of life. and. Uh, he just thought that he would always have enough leverage to, to, to pull the strings and to push the buttons, to shield the criticism uh, or any attempts to isolate him no matter what he did. You talked about this war being the first one that we watched you know, in social media and its annexation. Yes, it's aggressive war, but he already annexed Crimea. And annexation of yeah. Crimea was absolutely unique. That's, that's 21st century, eight years ago, but it's 21st century. Since 1945, I, correct me if I'm wrong, I think we had only two cases of annexation. I think Tibet and China, and Saddam Hussein mm -hmm. and Kuwait. So I'm sure a lot of people will say now this is Israel, and, and, but let's set it aside. So this, I, I, can, I understand the argument does exist, but hopefully will not be dragged into that. Right, so. Right. Uh, and Golan Heights. So um, annexations proved to be absolutely unacceptable by international law, and Saddam Hussein was repelled from Kuwait. But what is interesting is that every annexation, whether it's now or in the past, like Hitler's Anschluss of Austria or Sudetland, have been backed. I'm not supporting the logic, but there was some kind of di diplomatic uh, preparation. Oh, it's our land. It, it has been taken from us, like Saddam Hussein talked about British colonial power separating Kuwait and Iraq. Putin never used any diplomatic arguments about Crimea. Since 1991, the collapse of the Soviet Union, to 2014, Russia signed numerous treaties with Ukraine, signed by Yeltsin, by Putin, even by his shadow guy, Medvedev, ratified by all Russian parliaments. Not a single diplomatic demand of 
uh, return of Crimea or just doing anything with Crimea. And then he just grabbed it. So we mm. already reached a point where the fundamental element of the security system that was built after 1945 has been ruined. And Putin thought that's, that's it. So that's, that's like an open invitation. So I think now with this unity, I want to believe its unity is not temporary, but I'm not so sure. We have to think about the future. Yeah. So how we want to build the world that we can avoid these tragedies, not only in Europe, but elsewhere. What is the right global governance? Because the United Nations was uh, built as an institution to prevent the war. So 1945, it, 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 it's, it came into existence. And the idea was, oh, it, it can balance the, uh, the Soviets and, and Americans, two different blocks. And it, it worked. So not perfect, but it worked. But after 1991, it became obsolete because it's, it, is, it was not built to solve problems, but only to freeze them. And, uh, and now we, we have to think about solutions. We have to recognize that many countries are simply paying lip service to human rights and, and, and democracy, and uh, they use international organizations to promote their agenda. So as every, every year, one week in September in New York turned into the a catwalk for dictators, so the, the UN, yeah. UN uh, General Assembly. And, uh, um, and I think that's Ukrainian uh, 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 tragedy now. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a last call for us to make sure that we will find the right algorithm to, to prevent these strategies in, in the future. And that's why I'm talking about regime change in Russia, because I think Putin's failure or success in Ukraine could decide the balance of forces. And uh, if Putin succeeds, I don't think he will, but even if he has a temporary success in Ukraine, that will embolden China to attack Taiwan. By the way, will, the, will America defend Taiwan? America says yes. I'm not sure. Most important, China is not sure. China is watching Ukraine. Right. So it's, it's, it's a world that is so interdependent. So that's why it's important for us to recognize that what happens in Ukraine affects us, even democracy in this country. You, you mentioned Trump and many you know, Republicans who's hard to believe, but supported Putin. Not so much now. The, the atrocity in Ukraine, I think, changed, changed their, their, their yeah. opinions yeah, on many. They're, uh, but, they're getting quiet. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah, you're quiet. Yes, I agree. That's, 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 but it's the fact is that it's, 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 it's the, the democracy is under assault. So many young people in this country, they believe that communism was good just because they, they don't know what it is. And, and, uh, the value of democracy, uh, the value of freedom, it's always has been under attack, whether it's from far right or far left, not only in America, it's everywhere. It's just across the free world. So I, um, I think it's, it's, it's time for us to actually learn from Ukraine. And, uh, and by the way, just you know, using this moment, so it's, it's, we have a huge audience, so I, I can tell people that it's, if they're interested in helping Ukraine, so on Saturday, it's, my team will be doing an event for Ukraine, so it's supporting Ukraine. Uh, we'll have few guests, including the foreign minister of Ukraine, of Ukraine foreign affairs, uh, minister of Ukraine Kuleba, and and some of the some of the heroes who are fighting in the trenches. They will they will share their their experience of of resisting Russian aggression. So, mm-hmm. and uh, if you want to know more, it's you should visit rdi.org, rdi.org, and to learn more about this event that will happen on on Saturday morning. Great. We'll put a link to that. When we embed the podcast, so that, and that's the Renew Democracy Initiative, yes, right. 
Great. Well, Gary, I know we only had an hour of your time and we started late due to technical difficulties. So, um, but maybe we have, you have, you you have, I don't know if you have some questions again. I think it's, it's a huge audience and, and I'm sure, you know, that's, that's, that's people who have just, uh, they, 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 they have something to ask and I'm, I'm you, more than happy to invest a bit, you got a some bit more of my time to, to accommodate as many as we can. Oh, okay. Well, then let's take a few questions. I'm not going to, I will call your bluff. Stacey, I'm not bluffing. Do, do, do I'm, I'm a chess any... player, not a poker player. I'm, that's right. Stacy, do, do we have any uh, questions at the top of the, the queue? So first up, is there any way to quote Steelman Putin's concerns coming from someone who vehemently opposes his actions and believes he is an authoritarian? Uh, so, so let me just translate that. I don't know if this phrase has reached your brain yet. That um, The question is, can we steel man Putin's concerns, steel man as opposed to straw man? So yeah. this is a question I've already asked you, but perhaps you want to take another pass at it. Is there any sane, sympathetic construal of his point of view, you know, him, him defending Mother Russia? In, in, is there any, I guess I would add to this question, because I, I know you're going to knock that down. If we could get a re- regime change, is it at all likely that we would wind up with something fairly similar to Putin that would just come and another Russian nationalist with czarist dreams, another uh, aspiring Peter the Great, or not? So take that any way you want. Look, um, and, and I want to point out that, that this contradiction here, because it's this is, we know the threat is not coming from Russian nationalism, but from a psychopath. So the, this, I think people should recognize that it's the, 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 all dictatorships are potentially very dangerous. But the most dangerous form is a one-man dictatorship with one man on top. So these kind of dictatorships can start aggressive wars. Because when you deal with Politburo as a Soviet Union, let's go back to 1962 Caribbean crisis. Khrushchev was in mm-hmm. charge, but it was Politburo. There was a balance. And we could we'd have avoided the, the wars. So the real danger you know, just that we're facing today is due to the fact that we have one man on top. So let's say he disappears. We're not discussing how. He's gone. I don't think that we can, we can expect, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the repetition of, of, of um, this, the, the Russian history because Russia, I think, reached its, its, its point of exhaustion. I think it's this, the, whoever comes after Putin will be different because the country has no more resources to continue these crazy imperial policies. I know many Russian nationalists. They, they are strongly opposing uh, war in Ukraine. Because it's against Russian mm. national interest. Vladimir Putin caused more destruction to, to our country than any, any invader in, in, in history. And it's, it will not take too long to actually to communicate this back to, to, to Russian people. I, don't, I cannot tell you that we'll have you know, just a democracy next day. And it's, it's no matter what happens, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll uh, be uh, mourning the, the crimes of Putin regime. But look, it's it's the only way forward, and uh, and I, if you want my opinion, I will be optimistic for any kind of change that happens in mm-hmm. Russia now. But from what I know about the mood of people in in, in different um, segments of Russian society, Russian people would like to be part of the global economy, whether they share the same ideas of democratic governance, that's another story. But if they see the connection between democracy and high living standards and full integration in the global economy, I think their personal interest will prevail. 
Okay, next question. Next question. Many Russian celebrities have come out against the war. What are the po- potential consequences these people might face for coming out against Putin and what role do celebrities play in maybe catalyzing an uprising in Russian civil society? Many, but not enough to, to, to influence all Russians. But you're right. Many of them went against the war. They signed letters. Uh, they publicly spoke about it. They immediately lost their contracts with Russian television, with, with entertainment industry. Uh, but again, that's a good sign. It's even people who have been very pro-Putin and, uh, and celebrated the annexation of Crimea eight years ago, now they changed. So the, the, the support for Putin's aggressive war in Ukraine is nowhere near what was in Russia eight years ago uh, after the annexation mm. of Crimea. And uh, it's the first time where a lot of people, you know, just they felt that they couldn't be associated with the regime any longer. And, uh, and it's, the fact is that Putin closed every independent media outlet in Russia. Even those that tried to maneuver and just to, to, to invite some of the pro-Putin pundits to, to their shows. No, it's all gone now. And I think it's, it shows that the regime is much weaker than it used to be uh, because the, the effectiveness of, of, of Putin's control over Russian society was based on the flexibility. It's not just you know, repressions, uh, killing people, throwing them out. It's, it's about balancing. Yeah, you, of course, they, were, they never had allergy for, for blood. They could kill people. They could imprison people. They can push them into exile. But they also could buy them. They could offer just you know, some kind of a compromise. Now it's all gone. It's an mm-hmm. open fascist dictatorship with, with a crazy paranoid uh, furor on top. And that m- means that regime lost its flexibility. It's, it's, it looks much stronger, but it's actually it's much easier to, to, to break because it will not be able to, to sustain the pressure both from outside and from inside. Following up on that, Gary, do you know how hard our sanctions have hit the oligarchs thus far? I mean, is, is there um, a sign that the oligarchs are, are making... Um, the kinds of noises we would want them to make? No, I, I don't think the oligarchs can immediately influence Putin. That's, again, we, we, it's, we, we, we already passed this moment where they could have mm-hmm. some award with Putin and, and hopefully you know, just convince him to, to stop his aggressive policies. Uh, but it's still important because it's, it's about money. It's the, many of them are still connected to the regime, and, uh, and you never know what kind of critical mass you need to send the right message back to Russia. Don't forget, many of them still have businesses in Russia, and these businesses employ thousands and tens of thousands of people, so they can influence events. But they have to be forced to make a choice. They always avoided making this choice. So the choice, you know, whether they stick to Putin and you lose everything here, or you can buy your uh, part of your fortune by helping uh, uh, regime change, and also contributing to, to let's say, to, reparation to reparations to Ukraine. That's, by the way, also a big chunk of Russian budget will, will have to be spent on uh, rebuilding Ukraine, since mm-hmm. no democratic government in Russia could, could, was, would be in a position to deny our responsibility for these crimes. Okay, Stacey, next question. It's hard to be anything other than cynical about China's current stance on the evasion invasion of Ukraine, but there is no doubt that China has influence over Putin. What are your thoughts on what 
we can do to persuade China to bring that influence to bear? So relations between China and, 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 and Chinese dictator Xi Jinping and Putin, they, it's not an alliance. I think that's many in the West, they're just wrong by thinking, oh, it's an, it's an alliance of two countries. Alliance means you have equal responsibilities, relatively equal strengths. No, China doesn't treat Putin as an equal partner. But Chinese, they view Putin as a very useful tool to, to advance their agenda. Uh, by the way, you know, it's, if you doubt my words, you can look at, at the reception they offered Putin when he visited uh, Olympic Games recently. So it's, it's just Xi Jinping demonstrated that Putin was a junior partner at best. Mm. Also, the, the, the document that was signed when Putin visited China months uh, during the Olympics, just before the Olympics, at the, at the opening of the Olympics, talked only about, about Chinese interests. So Putin recognized Taiwan as a Chinese territory and made all sorts of concessions to China, while China refrained from recognizing Crimea as a part of Russia. So it, hmm. this is the game China is playing now, and that's why I don't think that Putin can rely on them as an offset for his uh, trade losses in, in Europe or elsewhere. China will not stick its neck to, to Putin, and they're seeing that Putin is not winning as, as they expected. Uh, uh, but obviously, they're trying to assess you know, uh, how they can use this conflict to advance their agenda. They want Taiwan. That's clearly Ch China is planning and, and what they call reunification, but it's, I would call yeah. it annexation now uh, of Taiwan. But they have to decide you know, what will be the response of the world, whether America will, will back it militarily. And they're watching now. So uh, I think it's a, it's a very pragmatic alliance for China. And uh, while, you know, I'm highly critical of Chinese Communist Party and the dictatorship and for the crimes they're committing, including the Uyghur genocide now and, and total destruction of democracy in Hong Kong and continuing uh, repressions in Tibet. But I, in this case, I don't think that Putin can expect them to be too helpful. They will never... They will never support full-blown sanctions against Russia, but they will, they will maneuver. This is the way they always did. Okay, Stacey, one more question. Okay. President Joe Biden just announced that his administration is banning Russian oil, natural gas, and coal imports to the U.S. in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Any comment on this? Oh, good. No, it's a, it's a very important step. I, I, um, I'm not sure, you know, that's, that's, that's the end of the world for, Putin, for Russian oil industry because there's still Europe is a big, biggest market. But I think it's a message. I think that sometimes, you know, the message is, is as important as economic consequences. So America demonstrates that it's willing to, 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 to fight uh, uh, Putin's regime and, and punish them for this, for this aggression. And uh, this kind of measure, I mean, it's a it's, it's very extreme measure. It also sends sends message to American allies in the world. So I think it's it's it has probably it's even more psychological than than economic because it hopefully it reinstates American credibility in the eyes of those who are still sitting on the fence deciding so how far they can go in opposing Putin. Yeah, I wonder if I mean, perhaps this is too idealistic, but I wonder if this is an, another epiphany we might have as a result of this crisis that we can't depend economically on regimes and societies that don't share our values, right? Like the idea that our supply chain is bound up with autocracies. And I mean, the idea that, I mean, the most salient case here is the idea that Germany decided to decommission its nuclear power plants and buy 
gas and oil from Russia, not seeing the vulnerability that that would would impose on them. It just do you think that this spell is going to lift and we're going to we're, we're going to um in some sense values test the countries we collaborate with in the future? Again, very important strategic question because it's about our strategy, long-term strategy. I'm dreaming about the world without fossil fuel because it will also have yeah. dramatic change in geopolitical climate. If you look at the countries that are s- supplying global economy with oil, with few exceptions, Norway, Canada, I think UK uh, in Northern Sea. So it's, it's all the same. So the oil money always support corrupt, oppressive regimes. So eliminating this factor from global industry would be a major breakthrough. Uh, yeah. But how realistic it is, that's another question. And also, how can we balance our move forward with immediate problems? At the end of the day, we're talking not about saving the planet. The planet is, is fine. It's, it will continue its existence with us or without us. I think that we, we shouldn't overestimate our importance for the planet, which is 4 billion years old and is going to stay prob- probably for another 4 billion years. But it's about our, our conditions. So the sum of conditions could be, you know, uh, just they could be life-threatening or just endangering our, our habitat. And it's, if it's about people, then, then where the balance comes into play. For instance, now, as we discussed, so the helping regimes like Maduro in Venezuela, uh, by the way, the country with the highest percentage of refugees in, in history. I think it's more than a quarter of the Venezuelans now just living in exile, just because mm. the, the conditions in the country are unbearable. Or helping Ukraine now, but, but also just supporting Iranian, directly or indirectly, Iranian terrorist regime. So it's, that's what I want. I want us to debate, you know, how we're moving in the future. So what, what kind of compromises we can make? So how, what is the goal? So what, what do we want to achieve in five or 10 years? So the, and not, not just, you know, to be beholden to the ideology. So we do this, you know, just at any cost. Yeah, it's, there are goals, long-term goals, but they're also intermediate goals and how we reach them without, you know, being paranoid with, with, with some ideas. No matter how noble these ideas are, they might be detrimental for problems that we, we are facing right now. At the end of the day, it's about mm-hmm. people. It's about it's about individuals. It's about uh, our, our life standards. And like in Ukraine now, it's about life, and of course, liberty and pursuit of happiness. But it all starts with life. Yeah. Well, um, it's about people, and you're one of the uh, the great people helping uh, shed light on on these pressing questions of our time, Gary. So, again, thank you for the, all the time you've given us. And I will remind people that you're doing. Yes work in in many places, but uh, the Renewed Democracy Initiative, rdi.org, is where to find you uh, soon. And um, you said this Saturday you're having a- Yes, Saturday morning, the time to be decided because we're dealing with Ukrainian side and they they ask us to be flexible. But it will be a unique program with uh, Ukrainian uh, foreign minister and some of the heroes from the trenches that will share the experience and hopefully it will encourage people to, to give them help. Great. Well, thanks again, Gary. Thank you very much. Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye.